Well, the good news is on a day like today, though we had to get up a little earlier, at least it felt like it, we'll get an extra hour of sunlight at the end of the day. I don't know if that's any consolation for you. Uh, It is for me because spring is always uh, one of my favorite times of year. Uh, It's always uh, the time of year where we kind of get to have extended time outside and we can go out and do outside things and we can emerge from this, uh, from our homes and enjoy nature and all the things that it has to offer. One of my favorite things to do in the springtime is always to go hiking. Uh, I don't get to do it very often, but uh, one of my favorite things to do is, is to go hiking, take my kids hiking. And uh, one of my favorite places to do it is actually about uh, an hour and a half west of here in the Catoctin Mountains. Uh, and there's a, there's a hike you can do over there uh, that takes, it's about a two mile hike. It takes a little while, but then you, you open up into this area and it's called Wolf Rock. I don't know if anybody's ever been there before. And it's this just huge rock that you can uh, crawl in and out of crevices and climb and explore. And they even have uh, caves to them where you can uh, kind of venture into these caves. And as you get deeper and deeper in the cave, it just gets darker and darker. And uh, it's one of my favorite things to do. And uh, I thought about that a a little bit this week, even as uh, I prepared uh, for our sermon uh, this morning, oddly enough, in the book of Judges. Because as many of you know, uh, Judges is a dark book, right? It's a very difficult book to kind of study. And just as you venture into a cave, if you have the nerve and can venture into the cave, you'll know that as you go deeper and deeper, it just gets darker and darker till, uh, till you get to really utter darkness. Well, it reminded me of this book because this book highlights uh, a particular chapter in the story of God's people, and it is a dark chapter in their story. And what is, what is particularly tragic about the book is that things just get darker and darker as you read the book. The rebellion of God's people, the consequences get darker and darker. And as, uh, and as the book ends, it kind of arrives at its darkest place or its darkest moment where we're not going to get to it. But at the end of the book, really civil war breaks out amongst God's people. And, and one of those tribes almost gets entirely wiped out. So this is a, a dark book, and the chapter we're about to read is a dark story in a greater a book that is dark. It's, some have called this text the, the text of, of terror in a book of weeping. So we're going to read uh, from Judges chapter 11 this morning, and uh, I'm going to read the first uh, 11 verses, then I'm going to skip over uh, some sections that are tough to pronounce, and then I'm going to finish it off uh, by going to verse 29. This is God's word. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, and he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight with the Ammonites." 
But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight with the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again, To fight with the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now we're going to fast forward to to verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Arior to the, to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities. And as far as Abel, Kuramim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we just uh, thank you for our time to worship together, Father. But we thank you ultimately for your word uh, that tells us what worship's about, tells us what life is about, tells us what a relationship with you is all about, Father. And even this passage, Lord, that seems so kind of bizarre and and ancient and uh, uh, very different than what we are used to in our in our culture, in our sensibilities. Father, even you use these stories to show us what it means to be in a relationship with you. So, Father, we pray uh, for your spirit to come into our hearts this morning, 
that we would see you clearly, even in this dark story in the book of Judges. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. One of uh, my kids' uh, favorite things to do is to go to uh, the kids' workshop at Home Depot each month. If you've got elementary age kids, you've got to do this. It's the first, I think it's the first Saturday of every month. And you go and they they give you a, a, a kit that's free and you get to sit there with a bunch of other parents and work with your kids on a building project. And I have to be honest that though I like it a lot, we have a really good time, it often is very hard for me to just watch them do it and, and let them do it on their own. I tend to kind of stand over their shoulder to kind of hover back from them and kind of get too involved and try to correct them, make sure they nail the nail the right way and do all this sort of stuff. And, and if I'm not careful in the process, what I will end up doing is taking over all the control and building the project myself. In fact, that's happened several times uh, that we've done that. I've never really considered myself to be a person who uh, has control issues or, or issue with control, but I think everyone in certain circumstances uh, desperately wants or desires uh, the control over their lives or the control over circumstances. And in a very weird way, our passage this morning is all about this idea of control. It really begs the question of who is in control of the circumstances of our lives. The passage tells us about uh, a man uh, whose name is Jephthah. And Jephthah becomes uh, the deliverer of God's people in, in a really dark time in their history. Judges chapter 10 tells us that, that God's people had uh, walked away from God once again. They've walked towards sin and they walked away from God. They worshiped the gods of, of all the foreign nations that were around them. And because of that, they reaped the consequences. God became angry with them and he sold them into servitude. And the passage tells us that for 18 years, 18 years, the Philistines and the Ammonites oppressed God's people. And it took them eight years to finally get to the end of their rope because after 18 years, they began to cry out to God for help. They cried out in supplication and God responded and sent Jephthah to deliver this nation from their oppression. Verse 29 tells us that the spirit of the Lord or God's spirit came upon Jephthah and he delivered the people from their great oppression at the hands of their enemies. But what's so interesting and sad about this story is that the focal point of this story is not the military victory or even the salvation that God's people get in the middle of it. The, f- the focus of this story is Jephthah's tragic vow that he makes before God. Jephthah is uh, preparing to to go into battle. He's doing all the necessary things he needs to do before he goes into battle. And he wants to make sure his bases are covered. So he makes a vow before God. Verse 30 says that his vow, he says to God, I will give, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's 
and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah goes out. He, he experiences this incredible military victory. It says he takes 20 cities back in great battle and victory. And when he returns home in celebration, the most unthinkable thing happens to him. Verse 34, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child because he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. For literal centuries, people have read this story with lots of questions. They've read this story and they've debated and they wondered what was Jephthah thinking? What could have made him promise such a vow before the Lord? And if you know the the Old Testament system or the ancient world, you'll know that vows uh, in the ancient world were treated Uh, with incredible weight, much more than uh, vows are treated in our culture today. They had great significance in the ancient world. So as many have looked at this, they've thought, what was Jephthah expecting to happen when he made this vow? Did he think an animal would be the first thing to come out of his house to greet him and he would then just sacrifice that animal to God? Or did he expect it to be some lowly servant that he just didn't really care much about? But tragically, the passage tells us that his only daughter, who was really just a child, came out to greet him. And many have asked themselves, was this just simple stupidity on the part of Jephthah or was something deeper going on when he made this vow? (coughs) There's two things I think that help shed some light on, on why Jephthah would have made this vow in this story. The first is we see in Jephthah that he was treating God the way all the other nations treated their gods as well. If you've been with us, if we've looked through the book of Judges, you'll know that Israel was surrounded by all sorts of foreign gods, and all those foreign gods worshipped idols and they worshipped deities. They would hold festivals all throughout the year through certain seasons, and they would offer all sorts of different sacrifices up to these foreign gods. And what is so sad is that human sacrifice was a common occurrence in these different religions. And there is little doubt that Jephthah must have had this in his mind when he made this vow. And what it is, is it's a reminder to us about how far this nation had strayed from God. They would engaged in syncretism. They had engaged in this practice where they looked just like all the other nations around them. There was nothing at all that was unique to them. So they looked just like all the other nations. And meanwhile, the law of God, the law that was supposed to make the nation of Israel distinctive, made it clear that human sacrifice was never, ever acceptable. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, tells us how much God hated 
human sacrifice. He abhorred it. <coughs> and the Hebrew religion stood above all other religions in its belief in the dignity of human life. And actually, the book of Leviticus even gives all sorts of stipulations for people that make stupid vows. But because God's people had strayed so far from the law, they believed that God operated just like all the other gods. <coughs> the, the second thing, excuse me for coughing, the second thing I think that we see in Jephthah is we see that Jephthah was attempting to control God by what he was doing. You see, his vow was an attempt to manipulate God to do what Jephthah most wanted. Jephthah, at the end of the day, wanted to be able to control God. This, uh, this desire, this desire for control or the desire to control God goes all the way back to the beginning of our story. If you read the book of Genesis, you'll know that Adam and Eve were created in perfect harmony with God. He, God, was their creator, and they were his creation. But of course, as we read, all of that changed in an instant. Genesis tells us that the serpent came and tempted Adam and Eve, and after that temptation, Adam and Eve sinned. Well, if you remember, what was it that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with? He said to them, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely be like God. So what that tells us is that the sin that was behind the sin of eating that fruit was Adam and Eve's attempt to be God or to even be above God. The creation was trying or attempting to usurp the authority of the creator. And ever since then, humanity has attempted to control God. We don't want to be under any sort of authority. We want him to work for us. We don't want to wait for anything. We want him to act according to our timetable and according to our plan. And we want to manipulate him according. Thank you very much. We want to manipulate him according to our design rather than live under his design. And even our attempt that many people engage in, the attempt to earn our way into heaven, is itself a manipulation. Because when we do that, we are trying to put God in our debt. And when he doesn't do what we want him to do, when he doesn't do what we want, when he doesn't act according to our plan, when he doesn't act according to our will, then we react in anger like petulant children. One commentator wrote this, until we recognize that God is not obligated by our actions to do anything on our behalf, until we recognize that whatever he does is on the basis of his grace, that is, we don't deserve it, we will experience frustrations in our relationship with him. We don't worship him because of what we can get out of him, but because he is our God. And friends, I also think this is where the greater idea of religion can become particularly dangerous for us. 
when we forget the, the relational component of our faith, when we forget about the relationship aspect of God and instead embrace an empty religion where we can, we, we, which allows us to go through the motions of getting God to do what we want him to do. We end up worshiping God for selfish reasons or worshiping God for convenience. I think one of the scariest questions we can ask ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ is this. Do we worship God for who he is or do we worship him simply for what we can get out of him? If it is the latter, if it's the second, then our relationship isn't about faith. Instead, it's about doubt. It's about doubting him and trying to take matters into our own hands. Our faith isn't about courage. In the end, it is all about an attempt at control. A couple years ago, uh, we had decided, or I was thinking about this this week, a couple years ago, we had decided to to make a, a, a school switch when it came to our kids. They were going to one school and we wanted to switch them to a different school. And and we had identified what we had believed was uh, the absolute best scenario for our kids and for our family and for our church. Uh, but we simply had to apply into the school and we had to get into the school. So we did all the hoops to do that. And then we did some extra things. We did what a lot of people end up doing when they want something. We prayed harder. We read our Bibles more, and we even offered extra prayers so that God would get us into the school. And we didn't know that we were doing this consciously, but subconsciously we figured that if we just did these things, then God would get us into this school. You see, what was happening at our heart level is that at least I was treating God like he was some sort of divine Santa Claus. I had figured out what was best, and I just needed God to get on board with my plan. I was going to strong arm or stiff arm God according to my desires. And when we didn't get in, when we were disappointed, we felt like we had been shortchanged by God. We went through all the hoops, God, and you ended up not giving us the thing that we most desired. You see, the spirit of Jephthah was in my heart, even in those moments. I simply wanted God to rubber stamp my agenda. You see, friends, we need to recognize that saving faith is the powerful recognition that God is God and we are not. He is the creator and we are the creation. I can't tell you how easy this is to get backwards or to turn upside uh, on its head. And that's why I think in a very weird way, I find the book of Judges to be incredibly comforting. Because despite our repeated attempts to control God, just like you read about in the book of Judges, despite all that, he still remains faithful to his people. I read this week about one commentator warning that we ought not read the book of Judges and be so harsh on the God's people that we read about in the book of Judges because our rebellion at times 
is just as extreme as theirs. It just looks a little different than theirs. And that is why the book of Judges drips with God's grace. And that is why your relationship also with God drips of his grace. It drips of our receiving what we do not deserve. The book of Judges drips with grace, but it also drips with all sorts of pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. When you think about it, Jephthah was an illegitimate child who was born of a prostitute. And because of that, he was surrounded by scandal and he was ultimately rejected by his own family. So instead, he gathered a group of misfits and vagabonds all around him. And yet, despite all that, he brought salvation to God's people. Well, the gospel story tells us that Jesus also was born into scandal. He was also labeled as an illegitimate child. He was also rejected by all of his family and his friends. He also gathered a ragtag group of misfits that everybody else called sinners who became his followers. And in the end, Jesus was the one that brought salvation to his people from sin and death. You know, the real tragic hero uh, of this story, the real tragic hero becomes Jephthah's poor daughter. She receives uh, this death sentence from her father and she receives it with incredible grace and with incredible humility. And the passage, if you've read it at the very end, the passage makes a very big deal about her young age, about her virginity, and about her weeping for her virginity. And what the writer is trying to do all throughout the process is to help us to see how innocent Jephthah's daughter is in this entire story. She is an innocent one who suffers because of another person's sin. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate innocent one who died for the sins of others. The gospel tells us that Jesus was the only one who had ever lived a perfect life. And yet, in spite of that, his life was demanded from him. And he was crucified as a common criminal bearing the shame that you and I deserve. And friends, that is the very thing that we celebrate in the Easter season. You and I have sinned in our attempts to control and manipulate God. We've become oppressed by that sin that exists in our lives. And when, we, when the gospel comes to us, when the Spirit acts in our hearts and in our lives, then we cry out to God for rescue. And what God does is he points us to the innocent one who suffered on our behalf. And that is good news. Let's pray.